Well, welcome back to our study of First Thessalonians. Um, if you didn't catch it on the way in, um, we have about 50 First Thessalonians journals. Um, so if you didn't grab one, feel free to grab one on the way out. Uh, they're just there for you to take notes in as we walk through the book. Uh, so last week we hit the very first verse, First Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. And today we're going to hit First Thessalonians 1 verses 2 through 10. And the title of this sermon is A Missionary Church. A Missionary Church, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10. I want you to imagine with me what it would be like to be a part of a small church that had a huge impact, not only in their city, but on an entire region and beyond. To put it into perspective, imagine a small church in Santa Cruz that began to have an effect not only on California, but Arizona too. You travel into a random city in either of those states and you begin to talk about the church and you can't even finish your sentence before the locals there say, we know about that church. We've heard about what God's doing there. Can you imagine that? Now, what do you think it would take for that to happen? What kinds of things would that church be doing to have that kind of widespread publicity? Great music? Innovative children's programs? Brilliant marketing? A great hip-sounding church name with a cool logo and a great website? What would a church have to do to impact an entire region and beyond? Let's dive into our text. 1 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What an amazing text of scripture that is. Look, look what Paul says there in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. 
constantly mentioning you in our prayers. It's important for the rest of this text to know that this verb, give thanks, is the main verb in this whole section. Everything that Paul writes after that verb is anchored to it. This section of the letter is all about thankfulness to God for what Paul sees and what they've experienced. And this is key. While these words absolutely are about encouraging these believers, we've got to make sure that credit is given where credit is due. From the very beginning, Paul thanks God for what he sees in the Thessalonian church. I'm going to be calling them the the little church that could the rest of this sermon. And this is appropriate for Paul to thank God. God is the one who not only saved them, but equips them and gifts them to do what they're doing. Anything that's said about the Thessalonian church is a result of God's work in and through them. God is the ultimate cause of all spiritual results in them and in us. And again, this is by God's design. When God gets the credit, God is glorified. It's not, God gave you guys a great jump start, but man, you guys are awesome. Look how amazing you are, Thessalonians. All glory be to you. Not at all. Paul gives thanks to God for what he sees in the Thessalonian church. And how is Paul doing this? He says, always, constantly. What does he mean by this? Well, because Paul was Jewish and because it seems like this custom was still very much alive, Paul most likely prayed three times a day at specific times. So what what Paul's saying here is, Thessalonians, every single time I pray, I give thanks to God for you guys. So, here's the million dollar question. When Paul prays for them, what's the content of his prayers? Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not wrong to pray for one another's health or to pray for one another's safety or anything like that. Not wrong at all. But that's not what Paul does here or really anywhere in the New Testament for that matter. Look at what he thanks God for in his prayers. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Let's look closer at each of these realities. Number one, their work of faith. What's what's Paul saying here? First off, it's vitally important for us to understand that Paul is not, he's not saying that faith is a work. Earlier we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What does Paul say there? Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? How are we saved? By grace, demerited favor. By grace, through faith or belief or trust. He explicitly says it's not your own doing. It's a gift, not a result of works. If this is true, and it is, who gets the credit for salvation? God. We are his workmanship. It's his work in us that then produces good works. And that's what Paul is praising God for here in the Thessalonian church. He's thanking God for their works, which are produced by faith. A large part of the book of James is all about this. How faith and works go together. The thrust of James chapter 2 is that so-called faith that doesn't produce works is dead. It's not real faith, James says. But real faith always produces works. That's saving in real faith. And it's evident by the fruit of works in your life. That's what Paul's thanking God for. He sees this work of faith in the Thessalonian church. Their fruit stand, so to speak, is full of produce with God as the grower. It's a work of faith. Second, Paul thanks God for their labor of love. This word for labor is the word kapas. And it means toil, trouble, hard labor. Again, this, this of love, so labor of love, just like of faith, is what's known in, in grammar as a genitive. And in Greek, one of the options is a causal genitive. All three of these seem to be causal genitives. A work because of faith. A labor because of love. A steadfastness because of hope. See this. Love isn't simply good feelings or a warm emotion. True love, just like true faith, produces something. And what Paul sees is love that produces hard labor, toil, kapas. What is he saying? He's saying, I thank God that the love that he's put in you is a love that labors hard for others, a labor that's prompted by love. And this is reality, isn't it? If you've ever loved someone, your spouse, your kids, real people in the church with all of their faults and failures, if you've ever loved someone, you know that it takes labor. It takes hard work. It's easy to say, I love people. It's another thing to actually tangibly love them. It's hard work. It's not supposed to be easy. It's labor. Making someone a meal. Showing up to watch someone's kids to serve them. Bearing with one another's burdens. Giving of yourself at your own expense. All of that 
And so much more is a labor that's produced by love, the love of God. It's a work of faith, a labor of love. Third, Paul thanks God for their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, hope in the Bible isn't just wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation. It's not, gee, I really hope that happens, but I really don't think it will. Hope in the Bible is I confidently expect it. That's real hope. And what does this biblical hope in Christ produce, according to Paul? Steadfastness. Steadfastness of hope. Remember how this church was born in Acts 17 last week? This church was born in the midst of persecution. These young believers have been through the ringer. It hasn't been easy. And yet, they're persevering with endurance. Why? Because of their hope in Jesus Christ. William Barclay writes this, and I love this quote. He says, a man can endure anything as long as he has hope. For then he is walking not into the night, but into the dawn. That's so good. Not walking into the night, but into the dawn. Do you see the perspective change there? On knowing that you're walking into the, not into the night, but into the dawn? With one of them, there's hope of light. That's biblical hope. Because of Christ and him raising from the dead and his imminent return, we can take on anything as Christians. We can steadfastly walk through suffering, hardship, persecution, with endurance, because Jesus won. He wins in the end. And he's coming back for us. Do you see that? We'll come back to this again momentarily. But what amazing truths to be observing and thanking God for in your prayers. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. He's thanking God for their faith, hope, and love. And it doesn't end there. Verse 4, back in our text, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, this is a bombshell. And it begins with a participle, showing us that it's still connected to the main verb of we give thanks. In other words, Paul gives thanks, mentioning participle, remembering participle, and now verse 4, knowing participle. The structure of the text tells us that this is all connected to the thanks that he's giving to God. So, what does he say? Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does a group of pagans in Thessalonica, how does a group of pagans become loved by God and begin producing a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope? How's that happen? Through God's electing love. He's chosen them. It's key to see that that Paul is using Old Testament Jewish language 
to describe a New Testament, largely Gentile church. Notice up in verse 3 that Paul says, Our God and Father. Not just my God and Father. Our. He's wanting these Gentile Christians to know that they're part of God's family. They're loved by God. And just like Israel, they're God's chosen people. And just like Israel, God's choice of them isn't based on their great qualities. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Here it is, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see that? Why did God choose Israel? It is because the Lord loves you, the text says. Same here with the Thessalonians. Their salvation began with the love of God. And this is meant to be encouraging to the Thessalonians. Many today see the doctrine of election as controversial. But Paul doesn't see it as controversial at all. He sees it as incredibly encouraging in the midst of persecution. Paul wants them to know that they're going to make it. Why? Because God chose them based on his love. Paul's wanting to give the little church that could assurance of salvation. He's wanting to give them confidence and comfort. And here's a question. How can Paul confidently say that they're chosen? How can he say that? Well, because genuine conversion produces visible fruit. And Paul sees that fruit clearly in their lives. There's evidence there of their Christianity. There's evidence of their Christianity. I'll ask you this morning. If an investigator were to follow you around for a week or two, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? If they watched the way you lived, heard the way you talk, look at how you spent your time and your money, could they convict you of being a Christian based on the evidence? Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, abundantly, yes. Your lives are full of evidence that you're God's chosen people. The fruit of the gospel is visible in your lives. So Paul is thankful to God for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, and for their evident election. But again, how did this miracle happen in this pagan city? Look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see that? This is how conversion happens, both then and now. First, the gospel came in word. While Paul will say it's more than that, it's certainly not less. The gospel came to them in word. Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached the gospel to them. That's an indispensable part of conversion. You may have heard the phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Sounds great, but it's not biblical. That's like end world hunger, use food if necessary. Romans, Romans 10 verses 13 through 15 says this. Romans 10 verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The miracle of conversion requires the preaching of good news. And this word for preaching, keruso, it's about proclamation. It's about heralding good news. It's not an argument. It's a plain statement of fact. It's like a town crier coming into a city to announce truth. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did. And here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you're called to this too. This preaching, this heralding of the good news isn't only for paid professionals. Yes, what I'm doing right now is a particular type of preaching. But every single Christian is called to herald the good news of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. Sharing the good news, proclaiming the good news. All of us are called to take part in the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. You are the beautiful feet that bring good news, church. So, first, the gospel must come in word. But also, the text says, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see that? This is how true conversion happens. The gospel comes in word. Then God empowers that word, and the Holy Spirit transforms people's hearts with full conviction. There's a part that, that we play, and there's a part that we absolutely can't play in the conversion of a soul. We're called to faithfully herald the word of God, to, to scatter seed all over the place. But it takes a powerful work of the Spirit for someone to move from death to life. He's got to do that, and he gets credit for the fruit. Do you see how this works? That's how a pagan city is impacted with the gospel. And so we strive to be faithful in word. And we pray our hearts out for God to powerfully work through his spirit in the hearts of men and women. Now, what was the impact 
of this gospel that was preached and received by this new church plant in the capital of Macedonia. What was the impact? Look at verses 6 and 7. He's speaking to the Thessalonian church. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's beautiful. These, these changed pagans hear the word. They receive it. And then they begin to imitate Paul, who's imitating Jesus. Then they, as this little church, become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Again, think all of California and Arizona. It's an entire region we're talking about here. And what is it exactly that they're imitating? The text tells us clearly, doesn't it? They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That, my friends, is miraculous and supernatural. That sticks out better than any marketing campaign ever could. They're clinging to the truth of Christ in the midst of much affliction. They're being persecuted for their faith and they aren't letting go. They're doubling down. But it's even better than that, isn't it? They're taking persecution on the chin with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Throw Paul and Silas in prison, they're up singing hymns. That's not normal. That's supernatural. Where do you think they learned that? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endures the cross with joy. Paul and Silas endure persecution with joy. The Thessalonian church imitates them both. And it makes an impact on an entire region. My first question to you earlier was, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? My next question is this. What if someone began to imitate your life? What if someone began to imitate your life? For many of us as parents, we don't have to imagine that. It's very real, for good and for bad. Our kids begin to imitate us in many ways. What if someone began to imitate your life? Would it look like Christ? That's what's happening in the little church that could. This small band of believers in Thessalonica was having a big impact. Paul continues on in verses 8 through 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May this be said of Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Do you see how glorious this is? This isn't about them. It's not about their fame or their glory. It's about God's. The word of the Lord is radiating from them in all directions. And Paul's not saying, therefore, we don't need to preach anymore. He's saying, everywhere we go, they already know about what God's doing among you. Praise God for that. And what is it that God did explicitly? Again, true conversion. They turned to God from idols. To God from idols. To serve and to wait, the text says. This is an accurate portrait of the Christian life. First, these men and women are turning from idols. What's an idol? Lig Duncan defines an idol as anything in which we think we can find ultimate security and satisfaction instead of or better than in God. We set that thing up as our ultimate source of satisfaction and security, he says. It becomes a God to us, and we worship and serve and sacrifice for it. Tim Keller says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. I could list some common idols here, but I think that led us off the hook too easily this morning. Instead, I'd like to ask some diagnostic questions, again from Lig Duncan, to help us identify our idols. And we all have them, by the way. So question one, diagnostic question for identifying idols. Number one, what do I think about? What do I think about? What do I think about when I'm not thinking about anything else? Thinking about this gives you pleasure. It gives you satisfaction. It gives you security. What do I think about? Question two. How do I spend my time, my resources, and my energy? This will show you what you really value. The calendar and the bank statement don't lie. They'll show you what you worship. So what do I think about, and how do I spend my time, resources, and energy? Three, what disappoints me? What absolutely crushes me with disappointment? What, if I lost it or failed at it, would make me feel crushed or worthless? If you want to find your idols, ask those questions of yourself honestly. Ask God to reveal idols in your heart. The Thessalonian believers are turning from idols, the things that controlled their hearts and their affections, their time and their resources turning from idols, and they're turning to God. God became all-satisfying to them and their joy. He was the controlling influence in their lives. 
What Paul's saying is they were changed people. And when they turned, it wasn't a passive turning, was it? No. He tells us, he says, they turned to serve. To serve the living and true God. That's more fruit, isn't it? Real conversion doesn't simply lead to being a consumer. It leads to serving God. Again, I'm not going to list out what counts as service to God. It all counts. But I'd encourage you to do a checkup on your life. If you're a Christian, how is your life being given in service to God? There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't serve God. That kind of a Christian has no impact on God's kingdom. A true Christian turns to God from idols to serve and finally to wait. In closing, look at verse 10 again. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. How can Christians persevere through suffering, hardship, and even persecution with joy in service to God and love for one another? By realizing and hoping for the imminent return of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. By knowing that that Jesus is coming back and that this life is momentary. Look at how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What if we all lived in light of eternity and not in light of the here and now? How would you live if you believed you'd either die or that Christ would return next week? You can be sure that that will impact the way you live and impact those around you. These Thessalonians lived for Christ. And they eagerly anticipated his return. And why were they able to do this without fear? I mean, to some, the thought of death or the end of days can be quite the fearful thing. But instead, these Thessalonians had hope and excitement. Why? Because they believed the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead and delivers from the wrath to come. If you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ as the only hope of your salvation, death has lost its sting. Your future is secure and you're delivered from God's just wrath. There's no condemnation for you. There's only hope and excitement for Christ's return. And if you're not a Christian, I beg of you, I plead with you today to turn and to trust in Christ. God's wrath that it talks about here in this text 
God's wrath is real. And every single one of us, myself included, deserve it. Revelation chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, tells us that at the end of days, that this is going to be the scene. Revelation 5, 16 and 17, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You can either hide yourself in the rocks, or you can hide yourself in Jesus. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the just penalty for our sin. He was buried and three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and offering eternal life to all who would repent and believe. You can have eternal life and hope this very instant. And if you'd like to talk more about that, I'll be standing out here next to the black table after the service. I would love to talk to you. God's wrath is real. And our only hope is Jesus Christ. The little church that could had a huge, huge outsized impact on their community and on their world. Was it because of their preacher? No. Paul was gone. Was it because of their programs? No. They didn't have any. Was it because of their entertaining music? No. It was their lives. They received the word of the gospel, and it produced fruit in their lives. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, chosen by God, joy in the spirit, turning to God from idols to serve and to wait. That makes an impact. And that's my prayer for you as Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Let's pray.